God is working in beautiful and remarkable and eternally significant ways uh, right here. And he's doing that in churches throughout the world and gatherings throughout the world today. And that's amazing to be a part of that. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I forget exactly when it was, but when uh, some, I think most of you were on the Zoom call that I was, that I was also privileged to be a part of where we were sort of it's introduced, you guys were sort of introduced to the idea that, hey, that maybe maybe Resurrection OC's time is, is coming to an end. Um, as I was just listening to that conversation uh, come about uh, and sort of the encouragement to both lament and grieve, uh, but also to rejoice in the work that God has done, and the work that God will continue to do. Uh, my my immediate thought went to one of my favorite psalms in the Old Testament, Psalm 126, uh, which I chose this morning to reflect on just because I think it's so, at least for me, and so marvel, marvelously captures uh, these themes of, of weeping and laughter, of, of rejoicing, but also grief. And so um, this morning we're going to reflect on just very briefly on words from Psalm 126. Uh, So you can turn there if you have a Bible or uh, just listen along as I read. Uh, Here's the word of the Lord. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Our mouths were filled with laughter then and our tongues with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord had done great things for us. We were joyful. Restore our fortunes, Lord, like water courses in the Negev. Those who sow in tears will reap with shouts of joy. The one who goes along weeping, carrying the bag of seed, he will surely come back with shouts of joy, carrying his sheaves. This is the word of God. Let's pray to him. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that the grass withers, uh, the flower fades, but your word stands forever. So now we pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts together would be pleasing in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, So as I said, this poem, this ancient poem that has been around for thousands of years at this point, um, is a poem, it's a psalm about tears and joy it's about laughter and weeping and the context for this poem is most sort of bible scholars believe that uh, this is a poem that is reflecting on a people the the ancient people of israel who are meditating they're contemplating uh, their return from exile Uh, if you know the history of israel you remember that after after years of uh of civil war and division, uh, the, 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 the kingdoms of Israel and Judah were separated into two kingdoms. Eventually Israel was taken into captivity by Assyria, and then later Judah was taken into captivity by Babylon. And they were taken away from their homes. Uh, and what this poem is reflecting on is that reality. Uh, that's when the, poems, when the poet says, when the Lord restores the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Most scholars, that language that's used over and over again in scripture, not just in Psalm 126, most scholars know that that language is being used of that 
return from exile, that return from Babylon or Persia all the way back to Jerusalem when God restored the fortunes of his people, when he brought them back out of captivity uh, in Babylon, out of when their exile was ended in Babylon. And if you remember, uh, the ancient people of Israel, when Jerusalem was destroyed, that was their home. Uh, it was the place where they uh, where they had relationships, where they had relationships that went back decades, hundreds of years. This was a place that they had farmed. Uh, this was a place that they had grown their crops, raised their kids. They had uh, married and fell in love. They had uh, sat around table and enjoyed each other's company for hundreds of years. That's what Jerusalem represented was their home. Um, and Israel, at the time of their captivity, found themselves displaced from that home. Uh, they were removed from that home. But more than just that, um, it, was, it was the total annihilation, the total destruction of their, um, of their religious life, of their walk before God, right? The temple was dismantled. Um, I'm, I've been reading in Daniel lately, and there's, uh, you know, the uh, King Nebuchadnezzar had taken the golden vessels from the temple and brought them all back to Babylon. Um, these were artifacts and, and instruments of, you could say, the ancient church that was, that was, that was representative of their whole life, of their relationship with God, about how God had brought them out of Egypt, about his promises to them, the law that he'd given them from Sinai. And all of that seemed to be extinguished. Uh, all of that was now being scattered and displaced uh, to the four corners of the world. And they were, many of them, taken into slavery in Babylon. There's the story of Daniel, uh, obviously, that I mentioned. And that was a, a time of great upheaval and turmoil. There's a whole book in the Old Testament, the book of Lamentations, dedicated to the grief and the trauma and the literal, the PTSD that Israel endured uh, because of that displacement, that scattering. And as I was reflecting on that this week, you know, that, that, true, that, that reality um, was, has been the story of the people of God over and over again. There were very few times in, uh, in the Old and New Testaments where the people of God, the followers of God, the followers of Yahweh, uh, found themselves in a position of security, found themselves in a place of comfort, uh, in, a, in a position of, of, of power where they were in control. Um, you think about um, uh, Adam and Eve being displaced and scattered from the Garden of Eden. Uh, you think about Abraham, who is called uh, from his home country into a land that he didn't know. It was a foreign land. It was a strange land. He had to live in tents. He had no, uh, no place to dwell. Uh, this, was the, this is the story of the people of God over and over again where they're in captivity and then they're released, uh, where they're um, at home someplace and then scattered again. Think about the early church in Acts. Uh, if you know the story of the early church, um, there was a church in Jerusalem after the resurrection. Uh, God had poured out his spirit on the church. Thousands of people were coming to faith in Jesus, were recognizing that Jesus was the Christ. He was the Messiah. He was who all scripture pointed to. And the spirit was about the work of uh, of capturing people's hearts and drawing them into a relationship with the risen Christ. And there's this, there's this moment in the early church where one of the early followers of Jesus, Stephen, 
uh, who was influential, who was a dynamic, uh, gifted communicator. Uh, he was a person that people followed, people respected. And he was eventually uh, martyred for the faith. And it, right after that story, we read that this church in Jerusalem is scattered. Uh, they, go to, they go to small towns and villages. They go up the, up the coast of the Mediterranean. And they begin to leave their homes, their, their livelihoods, their friendships. They're scattered. The church in Jerusalem, right at the point where it was growing and increasing and the, you know, the membership was booming and they were thinking about building a new youth center and all of those things, it was, it was compl- God had other plans for it, right? Uh, that's the story of the people of God. Um, he gathers them and then he scatters them. And it's, it's, it's part of his wisdom. It's part of his uh, plan for the world. It's part of his plan for you and for me. And Resurrection OC, um, I'm not a prophet or the son of, the pro- uh, son of a prophet, but it, you're about to be scattered. Uh, quite literally, this church will disband and you will go to various places. Some of you might end up at the same church. Some of you might end up at different churches. Some of you might move to various locations. You're about to be scattered. And I think there's, there's pro- at least in my mind, there might be a couple of questions, but there's maybe at least two questions that I would be asking at that moment. One, the first question is, did I fail? Uh, did, did we fail as a church? Did you fail as a church? Did all the years of sacrifice, of of dedication, of hard work, of getting up early on Sunday mornings to set up, of, of giving of your uh, uh, offerings to the Lord to see the work of the Lord increase here in South Orange County, uh, did the time of sitting around table, uh, investing into relationships, discipling your kids, uh, did, did all of that fail? Did, did you fail? I imagine there, there was ancient Israel Israelites who thought that somehow the exile, them being scattered to Babylon, uh, them being scattered to other nations, surrounding nations like Assyria and Egypt, there might have been a, there might have been a time in which they thought that they had failed. And in many real respects, the nation of Israel did fail. That's why they were scattered to, to Babylon. Uh, but did you fail? Did you as a follower of Jesus fail? Did you as a member of Resurrection OC fail? Uh, that, I think if you, if you zero in on that question, that could lead to a lot of frustration and, and hurt and, and depression. Uh, the other question that you could be asking is, did the mission fail? Um, this, is a, this is a local outpost of the kingdom of God. We're part of a larger global church that's been around for two thousands of two thousand of years. Did, but did is the mission of God failing? Sometimes you look at the world and you think, uh, man, I don't see. Yeah, in some parts of the world, the church seems to be growing, but in places like Europe and North America, it seems like the church's influence and uh, and the Christians that I know, there's people leaving the church and the, the statistics see, seem to suggest that the younger generations are increasingly leaving the faith, leaving the church. And I think we can be prone to ask, is the mission of God failing? Uh, churches are closing, is the mission of God failing? Resurrection OC is about to be scattered, is the mission of God failing? This psalm says that in moments like that, we have the opportunity to grieve. We have the opportunity to lament. We have the opportunity to ask God those questions. 
to come to him with our honesty, to come to him with our cynicism, to come to him with our depression, to come to him with our grief. And this psalm, among two-thirds of the psalms, opens up the reality that God can, can and is desirous to hear our grieving, to hear our hurts, uh, to hear our cries, to hear our lamentations. That's why he gave us books like Lamentations, books like the Psalms, because he's guiding us through the grief that we experience when we are scattered, when our lives are scattered, when our churches are dispersed and scattered. You know, Jesus, in the Old, in the Old Testament, there's descriptions of Jesus, and you see these descriptions played out in real time in the Gospels, where Jesus is described as a man of sorrows, as one who was acquainted with grief, as one whose life didn't look, it wasn't the upward right narrative that so often we think of as the church or the Christian life, that if your life isn't growing, if you're not becoming more and more like Jesus every single day, if the church is not increasing in size or in influence or in um, offerings or people, that somehow uh, God is failing, that the mission of God is failing. But look at the life of Jesus. It was an ordinary life filled with tragedy, filled with joy, uh, filled with thanks, thanksgiving, filled with relationships and friendships. Um, but Jesus was a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief. And if you just looked at one episode in the life of Jesus, the tragedy of the cross, if you just looked at that moment where the Son of God himself was scattered, where he endured the judgment of God, of God in his own body on the tree, you would think, man, the mission of God has failed. But you and I know that that's not true. You and I know that in the, in the exact moment where it looked like God himself was being defeated, where he was actually being nailed to a tree and crucified, executed for our sins, that was the greatest work of, that God had ever done. That just at the moment where Jesus was sowing in tears, literally grieving over the state of the world and carrying all of our hurts, all of our pain, all of our sins, all of our suffering in his own body at the cross, God was preparing this world and all eternity for laughter and joy that will be never ceasing. The cross should indicate to you that the mission of God has not failed. That God can take the biggest tragedy in your life and use it for his glory. Use it to bring about shouts of joy that will never end. He can also take the small things in your life. Those little hurts and griefs that you carry, those scars that you've endured, maybe in a relationship, maybe because of a church, maybe because of uh, things that you've endured in your past. God can take all of those things, and he will take all of those things, and somehow, mysteriously, God's word says he will take all of those tragedies, he's taken them all into the cross, and they will somehow lead to shouts of joy to laughter that never ends. He will take all of those things and use it for his good, for your good, and for his glory. I love the way that this psalm in Psalm 126 talks about the joy that was experienced after the return from exile. Notice what it says. Uh, 
the thing that brought ancient Israel joy was the remembrance, was the recollection, was the memory that God had done great things for them. Um, that the Lord had done great things for us. That was that was the whole history of Israel. They, you know, I, we live in a culture in which people say, "You've got to look into yourself to find joy and happiness. You've got to secure it on your own, or you have to look around you and sort of experience um, this world for all of it is, all of its beauty, all of its, uh, you know, sort of take advantage of this one life that you have." Um, but what Israel did was they looked behind them. They looked in their past. They looked to what God had done over and over again, and that brought them joy. Um, that brought them laughter. Um, you think about, and think about how that's true. How God can bring laughter and joy and rescue out of the greatest tragedy. I've also been reading in the Old Testament lately in the book of Genesis, and I've been reading the narratives, the stories of Joseph. Uh, you know, Joseph was um, the favored son of his father, Jacob. He was, um, in many ways, kind of a, it seemed to be like sort of a bratty kid. He was a, sort of a tattletale, sort of the favorite of his father. Um, his brothers hated him, and he was eventually sold into slavery and endured over and over again imprisonment, imprisonment false accusation, uh, tragedy, over and over again. The life of Joseph seemed to be marked by um, unceasing anguish of sowing in tears, where at the bottom of Joseph's life, he's literally in a pit crying out to his brothers to release him. But if you go to the very end of the story of Joseph, there's a moment in which Joseph finally realizes that all of those things needed to take place because it was Joseph himself who God had prepared to rescue the entire known world from famine. That God used all of the tragedy that Joseph had endured in order to position him into a place in the cabinet of Egypt in which he could rescue the entire world. The Lord had done great things for Joseph. And he could look back and be glad that God had worked even in those moments of tragedy, even in those moments of sadness and grief. So I want to ask you this morning, I want us to take just a few moments, and I want us to reflect on the last couple of years of Resurrection OC, and reflect together, what has the Lord done for you through Resurrection OC, through uh, friendships, through relationships, through the ministry that has happened here? Uh, through what you have collectively experienced as Resurrection OC. Take a moment and, and still your heart, quiet your heart, and reflect on what the Lord has done for you in Resurrection OC. You know, exile... For ancient Israel, exile and the theme of exile throughout scripture is often associated with death. Um, that's how the Israelites would have perceived exile. It was it was in some cases a literal death, but in some cases it was a it was social death, it was economic death, it was spiritual death. They were removed from the temple, removed from their homes, from their relationships. And they experienced that in profound ways. Ultimately, all of us 
have to deal with that question of death. I was I was reflecting again this week on a on a French philosopher who I've read on a number of occasions. His name's Luc Ferry, and he wrote uh, quite a, an interesting book, sort of an introduction to philosophy. And at one point in the book, he says, you know, all philosophy at some point has to wrestle with the question of death. It has to it has to understand how you make sense of that ultimate exile that you will one day experience. All of us will one day experience that. And he says there's three options that have been sort of historically and globally given to the the problem of death, the problem of death that we experience. And he says. Um, there's three choices that you have. One, and he's a, he's a secular humanist. He says, the first option is Buddhism. And if you know anything about sort of Eastern philosophy and Buddhist thought, it's the idea of non-attachment. So uh, a Buddhist might say that all of our life is in some sense, all of our relationships, our loves are in some sense an illusion. And so the, the whole point of life is to become unattached, to, to not become attached to these relationships in such a way that will lead you to sorrow because they will one day end. So the goal of your life is to become unattached, detached from those things which might pull you into sorrow and sadness. And he says that's, at the end of the day, there's something about, uh, you, you know, you can claim to follow uh, Buddhist teaching, but it's impossible to live that way because our hearts yearn for relationship with other people. Uh, they yearn to be connected to other people in a meaningful and powerful way. He says the second, the second approach that you could take is the approach that he takes as, his, as a secular humanist. And he says that approach is to recognize that you have one life to live. And so you need to take a full advantage of that life. Uh, and that should lead you towards um, being as active as you can in your relationships in your communities, trying to make the world a better place because you've got one shot. So you have to take full advantage of that one opportunity to live your fullest life now. And that's the approach that he takes. He says there's also a third option. He says that's historically been given. And he says it's the option of Christianity. And he says what Christianity offers is um, what Jesus promises to his followers is a life of unceasing laughter and joy and happiness in which the relationships you have now will endure on into eternity in a full experience of unending beauty and glory and truth and hope and happiness and enjoyment forever. And he says that, like, he says at one point, it's amazing because this is, this is a, a well-educated academic philosopher and he says, of, of the three options, that's the best option. There's, there, no one would deny that that would be the best option of all. And he says there's just one problem. He says that option is just, it's like too good to be true. Like how could that possibly be true? And so this sort of this enlightened philosopher, his one, his one uh, argument against the, the truth of Christianity is that it's too good to be true. Uh, that it's like it's like this is like a dream, man. It's it's way too good to be true. There's this interesting passage in Luke 24, and I'll close with this. Uh, this is after the resurrection, and Jesus has met, made a several um, appearances to his disciples. And there's this one throwaway line in Luke 24 uh, where it says that the disciples were inter the followers of Jesus were interacting with Jesus. And there's this little throwaway line that says, but some of them still disbelieved for joy. 
and I've often been struck by that, that there were, there were disciples, just like Luke Ferry, who were encountering the resurrected Jesus. They were seeing the resurrection himself in front of them, and they disbelieved because they thought it was too good to be true. How in the world could all of our dreams actually be real? All of our hopes for the future, the relationships that we hold, the mission of God that we're experiencing together, that you have experienced over the last several years together, how could all of the things that we are about as a church actually be true? And some people disbelieve that because it's too good to be true. And friends, the reality is those dreams are true. The reality, as Psalm 126 says, when the Lord restores the fortunes of Zion, when he one day brings in his kingdom in the fullness, you will know that all of those dreams that you had, all of the relationships that you've invested in, all of the time and energy that you've contributed to this work, they weren't for nothing. They were sowing seeds, often in tears, often with weeping, that God is going to reap with a harvest of joy, with sheaves of joy. And that will go on and on into eternity forever. And that's what the table is that we're about to experience together. It's a foretaste of that reality that there's a table, a banquet, a party set for each and every one of you that will go on into eternity. And it's your labor now, it's your tears now, it's your grief now, it's your hurting now that will one day be experienced as, man, all of that stuff was like a dream. And you'll finally wake up to the reality that is Jesus himself, life with Jesus. The resurrection is true. The church of God will always endure on into eternity because God's promise is sure. The resurrection proves that, friends. So bank on it. Bank on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Let's pray. God, the story of your people often is one of exile and restoration. From the moment that Adam and Eve were dispersed out of the garden, we've been looking for home. We've been searching for God to bring us back. We've been like lost sheep wandering each, every one of us in our own way. And yet you are the great shepherd. You are the one who goes into captivity itself and defeats death, defeats our sin and our shame, and brings us back home. Father, we're so grateful that a restoration is coming, that even as we're scattered uh, in our lives, as we experience displacement, as we experience experience heartache and grief and hurt of loneliness and frustration in our work and our relationships and our family uh, in the world around us father we know that one day a restoration is coming uh, that a resurrection has happened in history that's a foretaste of a coming reality um, it was true of jesus and it will be true for all of us so we pray that you would set our hopes that you would set our dreams that you would set our expectations on that coming resurrection, on that coming feast, on that coming celebration with you when all of our tears, all of the things that we've sowed, all of the seeds that we've planted will one day be 
reaped into a harvest of eternal joy. Father, we're grateful that you have given us this hope, so we pray that you would set our hearts on it. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen.